Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Rob, in case you don't know me. I'm the senior pastor here, so get those introductions out of the way. How did we do in the storm last week? Uh, yeah, it was pretty nasty, wasn't it? Um, I was uh, without power for 36 hours. I don't think I took the, 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 the trophy there. I'm sure some of us. Who had uh, power out for more than 48 hours? I'm just curious. Did anyone go for three days without power? Wow, anybody still without power? Okay, good. Uh, Becky Surhall told me I need to get a generator. So, point taken. Point taken. Uh, we had a great time, though. We uh, put on our fireplace. I got that thing roaring. The kids uh, took their sleeping bags and slept out in front of the fire. We cooked hot dogs, roasted marshmallows. They said we could live like this. <laughs> no. No, we can't. All right, let's take a look at God's word this morning. Genesis, picking up the story. Now, Last week, you might have noticed that we were supposed to actually cover 26 verses, and we covered 15. I, I kind of made a Holy Spirit-led call in the middle of the sermon and stopped about three-quarters of the way through to give you guys a break, you know what I'm saying? And here's how the math works out. I had about eight minutes more of preaching to cover, and now we have a 40-minute sermon. So I don't quite get how that works, but here we go. So this past Wednesday, March 14th, 2018, uh, one of the most recognized scientists of the modern age died at age 76. The New York Times writes, Stephen W. Hawking, the Cambridge University physicist and best-selling author who roamed to the cosmos from a wheelchair, pondering the nature of gravity and the origin of the universe and becoming an emblem of human determination and curiosity, died early Wednesday at his home in Cambridge. Not since Albert Einstein has a scientist so captured the public imagination and endeared himself to tens of millions of people around the world. Now, when I think of Stephen Hawking, I think of a life that is both fascinating and tragic. Um, in 1963, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, and medical science being the, uh, you know, all-proof, determiner, prophesying thing that it is said that he had a couple of years to live. And, of course, he beat the odds. In fact, Hawking was not going to allow the severe limitations of this disease to limit his contribution to the greater scientific world. He is probably best known for his books. Hawking wrote um, many best-selling books, but his most notorious book was his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time. Anybody own that book here? Really? No one? Chip! Me and you, baby. <laughs> That's right. It's funny because uh, one of his colleagues quipped that this is probably the least read, most bought book ever. It sold millions of copies, but due to his... Uh, you know, just incredible intellect, and he's dealing in the realm of theor theoretical physics. It happens that most people bought the book, read it, and had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, I'm just glad that I'm not the only one. So, in this book, uh, Hawking expressed this desire to find what he called a theory of everything. 
He wanted a scientific theory that would explain every reality, every possibility, and that would explain the world as it is, and go on to explain the world and other worlds as they might be or have, might have been. You followed that, right? So Hawking himself said, if we find the answer to that, it would be a triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Now, unfortunately, when saying a statement like the mind of God, Hawking did not actually mean he believed in God. He was an atheist. He believed in science. Hawking made many statements along the way that expressed his worldview. He said, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization, he said, that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. Now you think if a person adapts that kind of worldview, subscribes to it, that they would also have a certain worldview on humanity and human nature. Listen to what Hawkins said of humanity. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. Simply put, there's no God there's no afterlife. We are walking biological computers. Human consciousness is reduced to electrochemical reactions in the brain. That's it. The components stop working. The computer breaks down. You're done. Now, why do I bring up Stephen Hawking? Well, Hawking represents one of two ways to live. You see, in the Bible, the biblical worldview, the Bible says that there is ever and only two ways to live in this brave, new, unglued world. There's not five ways, there's not four ways, two. You get one of two choices. My life, your life, Stephen Hawking's life will be measured by the way that we decide to live. So every person lives what I would like to call an all-in sort of life. We're all betting on our worldview. Even if you've never said it before, even if you can't right now come out and say, oh, this is what my worldview is, I'm a materialist, you might say, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. But we're all betting on our worldview because our worldview kind of takes everything and says, this is the best sort of way to live. And if I live this way, then I will achieve the best outcome in this world. And we all want that. Stephen Hawking's bet was this. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe that there's an afterlife. I believe that science and reason are all that count. I'm all in. I'm betting every chip on that. He was essentially betting on human achievement. Now, the Bible presents another way to live, and this way involves God. It involves faith. It involves a belief in God's character and God's promises. So for two weeks, we're going to look at these two ways to live. Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, when you set them next to one another, they're two generational lines, two different outcomes. There's the line of Cain and the line of Seth, and they represent to us two ways to live, the pursuit of human achievement or the life of faith. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, just like Stephen Hawking asked himself, is which way do I want to live? Which worldview do I want to be all in on? 
and bet my life on. So let's pick up in the story, Genesis chapter 4, verses 16, and we'll read um, 16 through 18 together. So the story picks up, and it tells us that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. He, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Let's stop there for a minute. So I hope you picked up on that statement in verse 16 on Cain's life. You know, did he hear God's message? Did he kind of pick up on his lesson, learn it? No. What does the text say? Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He just started walking. Now, the um, word there, nod, means wandering. People have kind of thought of it as a specific region, but really, Cain just kind of wandered away from God. He started heading out east. Uh, in the book of Genesis, the further east you go, essentially, the further you are getting away from God. So you get the sense that nothing has changed within Cain. He's still full of rage and contempt for God. And if anything, this, this rage is fueling him to move out eastward to establish his own success. I'll show God. I'll show everyone. Cain is the one that's going to count. Cain's the one that's going to matter. And i got to tell you, from the outside looking in, he looks incredibly successful. He's married, he builds a city, he starts building a legacy, he's having children, verses 17 and 18, they tell us that we see six generations spanning over hundreds of years as Cain walks east. Now one of the questions that people ask of this text is, how in the world did Cain get a wife, right? That's the, the classic question of Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 17. I think the answer is pretty simple. I think that Cain married one of his sisters. When you think about it, if everyone came from two parents, he married a sister or a niece. Now you're thinking to yourself, oh, yuck. I mean, kind of sounds like he's from the backwoods. He might be from West Virginia. <laughs> you be careful on that. I was born in West Virginia, and I'll tell you, my parents met in West Virginia, and it was not at a family reunion. And I'm confident that they're at least third cousins. So, you're like, can he say that? Well, Harry talked about Miley Cyrus twerking, so I, th I think I can say that. <laughs> but seriously, marriage between siblings and close relatives was not prohibited until the Mosaic Law instituted thousands of years later in Leviticus 18. Um, there's no... Genetic imperfections at this point, right? I mean, Adam and Eve were created genetically perfect. Defect comes later as a result of the fall. So there you have it. There's the answer to your question. Now, I want you to see that Cain's decision to walk away from God involves his wife and his children as well. Uh, we're never kind of self-independent uh, autonomous figures in this world. Uh, the decisions that I make today always have ripple effects. 
And those ripple effects might not just uh, extend to the people that are presently living around me, but it might extend down into the generational lines. I mean, that is a sobering thought if you've ever had one. I sometimes, in sitting around my house, I'm feeling apathetic. I'm starting to develop bad habits, and it just kind of hits me like a ton of bricks. If you keep doing this, how's that going to affect your children, your grandchildren? That's a tough question. Positively, though, I know that some of you in this room have started changing your lineage. You've come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God impressed in your heart that His way was the way to live. Some of you came from incredibly difficult backgrounds. Incredibly difficult. I don't even know all the things you've dealt with. You were never brought up in faith. You were never told about the things of God. But you drove a stake in the ground and you said, from this moment forward, this family line's going to change. And I'm going to walk with Jesus. And i got to tell you, you guys are my heroes. I am so impressed with you. You are giving your children a greater gift than they will ever have received. And I hope that when they get old enough to start recognizing it, that they will say, Thank you, Mom and Dad, for walking with Jesus. You changed our lives because of that. So let's get back to Cain's family. Now, by turning his back on God, Cain is essentially starting the first secular society. That is a society that is built by human achievement, that lives apart from God, that no longer views God's guidance as necessary for moving forward. So the passage presents this fascinating conundrum. What happens to society when society walks away from God? Well, the answer is it can prosper. Look at what happens to Cain's line in verses 19 through 22. Um, It tells us that Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah. The name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zulah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So here we have these sons of Lamech, and they are advancing. They're achieving. Uh, Industriousness. Creativity. Advancement of culture. Why do you think people bet on human achievement? Do you think that they're betting on it because everyone who pursues it looks like an abysmal failure? You know, Cain stops walking with God. He starts heading east. He falls down a pit and dies. No one's going to bet on human achievement if that's the case, right? People can be incredibly industrious and successful without God. We still possess the image of God that allows us to think, to create, to grow, to develop, to experiment, to dream, to dare, and to explore new territory. In fact, sometimes secular society appears to be more successful precisely because they're betting everything on this one life. Everything. The only way for me to succeed in this world is if there is nothing beyond this life, then i got to win, and I've got to win now, and I might die trying to do so. I think of 
Elon Musk. Uh, the New York Times has called Musk arguably the most successful and important entrepreneur in the world, and it's kind of easy to make that argument. He's likely the only person who has started four billion-dollar corporations. Uh, PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, and Solar City. In an interview with Rolling Stones, he was asked the following question, do you believe in God? And he said, I try to let the weight of evidence determine my opinion. And they said, do you have a spiritual practice? He said, not really. I believe in science. Well, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I think you cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely, you're just gone. He's betting on what? Human achievement. And from the world's point of view, I mean, for crying out loud, Musk is winning. He's winning. Trust me, you can look incredibly successful without God. Doesn't that just stink? I mean, doesn't it make your blood kind of boil a little bit when you think about that? You're just, uh, how come they win and I don't win? Does it ever get to you? Well, that's why I'm grateful that we have passages like Psalm 73 where Asaph processed this out loud with God. I want to read to you from the message paraphrase. He, he begins with this pietistic kind of expression, no doubt about it, God is good, right? We say that, God's good. Good to people, good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it. Miss seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything they have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck? That's what a slap in the face every time I walk out the door. I can relate to that. It's hard to walk with God and feel like you're the one driving in the slow lane and the world is blowing past you in the fast lane. I'm playing by the rules. She's not. She's accomplishing twice as much. News outlets, right? Are they ever going to showcase the Christian that comes to church every Sunday, reads his Bible, she's praying, um, is growing to look more like Jesus? We're never going to see that in the New York Times. That's never going to go viral on YouTube. But I'll tell you, if you live in a moral life and your last name's Kardashian, People Magazine's going to follow you around like lost puppies. You sneeze and they write a story about it. Like Asaph, we start to think, these people have it made in the shade. They don't get sick like we do. They're leading interesting lives. They are somebodies and we're nobodies. And betting on life without God starts to seem more appealing. But the book of Jude warns us. Jude 11 says, beware of the way of Cain. It's a foolish bet. 
It's like throwing all of your money into a Ponzi scheme or betting on the dot-com bubble or investing in Blockbuster the year Netflix and Redbox are released. When you receive those first dividend reports, it feels great. You're not just doing okay. You're winning. You're crushing it. No one gets returns like these. But in time, you realize that those reports are lies. And you have nothing. And this is what Asaph realized. He said, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you've put them on with with a final crash in a ditch of delusions. In the blink of an eye, disaster, a blind curve in the dark and nightmare. Wake up in rubber eyes. Nothing. There's nothing to them. And there never was. Jesus put it plainly in Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, and every other person who has ever lived will one day stand face to face with their Creator. It doesn't matter how deeply convinced you are that He doesn't exist. He dies. He's real. And when you stand before him, what will you say? Well, God, I bet on myself. And, you know, I didn't really believe that you were relevant. I didn't think it was very important to follow you with my life. I bet on on pleasure and ambition and uh, material things in this world. How's that conversation going to go? As we move forward in the text... I also want you to see another reality of culture, another feature of Cain's line. Culture without God deteriorates. Culture without God deteriorates. One author writes, without God, the more power we have, the sooner we destroy ourselves. Without God, the richer we are, the sooner we rot. Look at what happens to Cain's great-great-grandson Lamech. Verse 19 tells us that he is the first polygamist. He marries two wives, and it suggests that the reason he did was motivated by lust. The name of his first wife was Adah, which means beauty, and Zalah means something like tinkling, and I'm assuming that means bright and flashy, not the way that my kids understand that word, but Lamech thought that both were attractive. They were beautiful, so he would have both. Because, I mean, if you're betting on human achievement and it's all about the pleasure that I can have now, two is better than one. He is totally disregarding God's word in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, culture that moves away from God always goes bankrupt sexually. And it doesn't take much time for all manner of perversion to be considered acceptable behavior. What replaces sound moral truth? Well, moral confusion and moral hypocrisy. I could cite a bunch of examples of this today, but let's take a time machine and transport Lamech to our own day and age. Now, if Lamech was to appear on the scene today, we would say Lamech's kind of a bad guy. He's oppressive to women. He's married two women. Why are two Lamechs better than 
or, or uh, one Lamech better than two women, right? We'd say that. But I'll tell you what, if we transported him before he married these women and he was just a serial adulterer or, you know, had a thousand one-night stands, well, then we'd say, oh, you know, hmm, I can't really judge him. I can't tell Lamech how to live his life. He can do what he wants to do. Confused, right? It's a little twisted in the logic. Look at another thing that happens to culture. Culture that moves away from God grows power-hungry and violent. I mean, if life is about human achievement, someone somewhere is going to discover that violence is a means to obtain power. Verses uh, 23 and 24 have been called Lamech's sword song. He says, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And this is a sad observation, isn't it? That the first recorded poem after everything becomes unglued is this boastful, arrogant bully who has no concern for human life and dignity. He's power drunk. He's walking around with his shirt off. He's beating his chest. He's puffing the peacock feathers. Bragging in front of his two wives. Look at the progression of sin. Eve is deceived, right? The serpent talks her into sin. Adam sins on his own. God can't talk Cain out of sin. Lamech wears sin as a badge of honor. Do you see what happens when everything becomes unglued? How did he kill this young man? Well, many commentators believe that he used a weapon fashioned by his own son, Tubal Cain. The name Tubal Cain literally means hammer sharpened. He was the ancestor of technology and industry. Uh, his work, no doubt, included making weapons. I don't think that it's, uh, the hyphenated name Tubal Cain was coincidental here. Here is the grim reality of sin. Civilization advances can be an incredibly good thing, right? Society can flourish as civilization advances. But at the same time, it, the same advances that are causing flourishing can be used to commit untold evils. I mean, Paul tells us that the sinful human heart, if left unchecked, can be used to invent all kinds of evil things, and we can invent evil things and new ways to do more evil with them. Think of nuclear technology. A thousand lives are being saved by diagnostic procedures only possible by nuclear medicine. I mean, the potential for good is staggering, right? However, in a flash, an H-bomb can kill more people than nuclear medicine could save in a generation and maim Millions more, right? A microchip can be used to help you find your dog or to guide a smart bomb into your window. Can you imagine a life without medicine, without painkillers, without smartphones, without the internet? At the same time, can you today imagine life without whole neighborhoods being destroyed by the opioid epidemic? Or children gaining access to pornography through the phones that we hand them to ensure that they are safe. Sadly, the most secular 
the more secular the world has grown, the more murderous it has grown. The 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. In Humanity, a Moral History of the 20th Century, Jonathan Glover estimates that 86 million people died in wars fought from 1900 to 1989. That means 2,500 people a day, 100 people every hour for 90 years. In addition to those killed in war, government-sponsored genocide and mass murder killed approximately 120 million people in the 20th century, perhaps 80 million between the two communist countries of China and the Soviet Union. I mean, how do you make sense of that kind of violence? Does Cain's way still seem so appealing? Let's roll back the clock. September 13th, 2001, two days after the terrorist attacks, the smoke was still rising from the Trade Center in the Pentagon, and as the nation grappled with the horror of what just happened, and Graham Lotz is interviewed on CBS, early show by Jane Clayson. Clayson asked, I've heard people say that those who are religious, those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that you say. And Graham Lotz responded, I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also for several years now, Americans in a sense have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of the schools. We want you out of the government. We want you out of business. We want you out of the marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, just quietly backed out of the national and political life, our public life, removing that hand of blessing and protection. We need to first turn to God of all and say, God, we're sorry that we've treated you this way and we invite you to come back into our nation and we put our trust in you. We have our trust in God on our coins. We need to practice it. Friends, I agree with Anne Graham Lotz. This country, more significantly, this world desperately needs Jesus. Science and reason have no answer to the big dilemma of human depravity. Jesus is the only cure for what ails the human heart. Technology and advancement and, and culture will never save a single person. But the blood of Jesus has the life-giving power to save every single human being on this planet. The only cure for what ails the human heart is the grace that we receive by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that gospel has the power to change the human heart. In Matthew 18.21, Peter approached Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Now, we've said this before, Peter tends to get a bad rap, doesn't he? But he's actually incredibly perceptive. He's the only disciple in, in several occasions that's getting it, that's actually on the trajectory of where Jesus is going. So he's looking at Jesus' trajectory, and when it comes to dealing with others and the hatreds that we carry in the human heart, he is understanding that forgiveness is the key indicator of a changed heart that will result in a changed life. But he's not all the way there, is he? 
How does Jesus respond? He says in verse 22, I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Lamech sings boastfully, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Jesus very intentionally says, no, Lamech, it's not about revenge. It's not about an avalanche of vengeance. It's about an exponential amount of forgiveness, an avalanche of grace. So that when Jesus returns, Isaiah tells us that nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Friends, does that sound good to you? It sounds good to me. And if you're not sure on whether or not it's worth betting on God, I want you to keep listening to this message because there will be a day where that will be the reality for those who have trusted in God. And if the Bible ended at this moment, right, if Lamech just gets out there and he sings his song, there would be no hope because God promised a seed. And Cain killed Abel. And it doesn't seem like this whole promise of God can continue forward, does it? How is God going to deliver on his first and most important promise? Look at verses 25 and 26. The Bible tells us that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Wow. And just give me a moment to speculate with you. You okay with that? Adam and Eve must have experienced incredible grief over the loss of their two sons, right? When you get over into Genesis 5, it tells us that Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. When did Adam have Cain and Abel? We don't really know. Uh, But they were fully formed adults when they walk out of the garden. Could have been early on. Um, I suspect that there was some time between Abel and Seth. I don't know how long. Could have been 20 years? 30 years? 50 years? We just don't know, but I I don't think it's reading into the Bible too far to suggest that there were many years between the death of Abel and Seth. So how do you think that felt? I mean, I wonder if Eve struggled with fear or doubt. I wonder if she needed to remind herself regularly, if not daily, that God had made a promise and that God is a a promise-keeping God and that God will never lie to her or intentionally deceive her or give her a false hope. That's the serpent's trade. That's not God's trade. So whatever the circumstances surrounding the birth of Seth were, we know that Eve saw a fulfillment of God's promise in his birth. The name Seth literally means appointed one. So the sense of verse 25 is that Eve named her son appointed one because God had appointed for me another offspring, another seed. That sounds like faith to me. 
Faith trusts that God can bring victory out of the ashes of defeat. Faith looks at the present situation and sees God at work. Verse 26 tells us more of the story. To Seth is born a son. He calls his name Enosh, and at that time, people call on the name of the Lord. Now, Kent Hughes notes that they did more than uh, what the rendering call upon the Lord suggests. Because in Moses' writing, call upon regularly means proclaimed. The idea is that the people began to make proclamation about the nature of who God is. Again, that's faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Seth's line has driven a stake in the ground and said, we are going to be a people of faith. We're going to start moving in the direction that God is moving. We're not going to go the way of Cain, the way of culture creation and industry at the expense of our relationship with God. We're only going to do and be involved in what God is involved in. Let's be honest. It takes faith to believe the promises of God and to call upon the name of the Lord and to proclaim him when culture is heading the complete opposite direction. When I think of faith and calling on the name of the Lord, I, of course, think of Billy Graham. (laughs) You know, Billy Graham bet on God several times in his life. Uh, At 16, Mordecai Ham is preaching the gospel and Billy Graham bets on faith in Jesus. He gives his life to Jesus. He starts following Jesus. When he's 18 years old, he felt a call from God and he wrestled with it to preach the gospel. And one night, he fell on his knees and he bet on God. And he started preaching the gospel. Now you'd think to yourself, okay, well that's set. Billy Graham's great from there. But you know that probably one of his biggest faith crises happened in August of 49 when God put his faith in the Bible to the test? At a student conference in San Bernardino Mountains of California, Charles Templeton asked questions about the Bible's truthfulness that Billy could not answer. John Pollock, a biographer, shares that Billy went out in the forest and wandered up the mountain. He prayed as he walked, Lord, what shall I do? What shall be the direction of my life? He had reached what he believed to be a crisis. I wonder if you've ever been there. He saw the intellect alone could not resolve the question of authority, that you must go beyond the intellect. He thought of the faith used constantly in daily life. He did not know how a train or a plane or a car worked, but he rode them. Was it only in things of the spirit that such faith was wrong? Well, Graham recalls, so I went back and I got my Bible and I went out in the moonlight and I got to a stump and I put the Bible on the stump and knelt down and said, oh God, I cannot prove certain things. I cannot answer some of the questions Chuck is raising and some of the other people are raising, but I accept this book to be the word of God. Well, this wasn't the first time that He had decided to bet on God. It was extremely important. 
Because the next month proved to be a turning point in his global evangelism, the Los Angeles Crusade. Overnight, he became a nationally known figure. One year later, Newsweek called him America's greatest living evangelist. And he would go on to talk to world leaders and presidents and and share the gospel in nations all over the world. But John Piper reflects that Billy Graham left a legacy of impact that is incalculable. He made an internal difference in being the human instrument of God's hand, bringing hundreds of thousands of people out of darkness into light, out of Satan's authority, into God's family, out of the condemnation, into forgiveness, out of sin, into holiness, and out of hell, into everlasting joy with God. You know, if I was a betting man, in this sense I am, I want to bet on God. Hebrews 11 reminds me that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists first and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is the better bet because Jesus is the better bet. He's God's guarantee. He is God's wisdom. He's the more intelligent option. He is the one that billions of people throughout history and throughout the world have bet on. So my question to you is, where are your chips right now? What are you betting on? Human achievement? Faith in Jesus? The Bible tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It also tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Are you willing to bet on Jesus? Are you? Stand up if you are.